afternoon, everyone, and welcome to the 13th of the COVID calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. These calls are held every weekday at 5 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, and they're free and open to the public. My name is Scott Knowles. I'm a disaster historian at Drexel University in Philadelphia, and I'll serve as the host for these discussions. We are streaming on YouTube Live. The link to this discussion can be found at the Scott Knowles YouTube channel or email me, or you can find me on Twitter at US of Disaster. Please do help spread the word about the COVID calls. Send me suggestions for guests and topics. I've gotten several great suggestions. Please keep those coming. And also please suggest yourself if you would like to join the discussion. You can also hear the COVID calls recorded as podcasts. Just go to soundcloud.com and search for the Slow Disaster Podcast. Tomorrow is gonna to be a little bit different, and I think a really powerful discussion of care, grieving parents and children. We have Sarah McBride, a former emergency manager, risk communication expert, and a Mendenhall Fellow at the, University, at the uh, United States Geological Survey. And we have Bernadette McBride, her mother, who's also a nurse practitioner and owner of a, Adult Family Homes Legacy Management and Tranquility Life Care in Washington State. We'll also be joined by Yvonne Michael of the Drexel Dornsife School of Public Health at Drexel University, where she studies active aging, women's health, and health disparities, as well as post-disaster health. So it's going to be a really, I think, important discussion about care and grieving and intergenerational relationships. As of today, there are globally 911,308 confirmed cases of COVID-19 globally, according to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center. That's up from 826,222 yesterday. 206,207 of those cases are in the United States, up from 174,467 yesterday. There are now a total of 4,542 deaths recorded in the United States, up from 3,416 yesterday. But as I said yesterday as well, everyone I talk to in public health and medicine believes that the case count is low. In my discussion yesterday about the Defense Production Act with Peter Shulman, he proposed what I thought was some really interesting ideas about the fact that the United States may have lost some of what it used to be able to do in terms of organizing and coordinating big projects, particularly projects that saw overlap and coordination in public and private sectors and responding to big disasters especially World War II. Of course, coming out of World War II, one of the great promises to be kept by the global community was to avoid future wars and to alleviate global suffering with disease as a crucial focus. And the World Health Organization was founded in that crucible in 1948. Now the World Health Organization has been tested many times by AIDS, by SARS, by Ebola, by Zika, and now by COVID-19. I was really eager to speak to an expert who could help us understand the World Health Organization's role with COVID-19, and I guess more generally how global pandemic preparedness has evolved over time through the Cold War to now. There's really no better expert to talk about these topics with than my guest today, Andy Lakoff. So let me introduce him. Andy Lakoff is professor of sociology and is joint appointed in the Department of Communication at the University of Southern California. His areas of interest include globalization, the history of the human sciences, contemporary social theory, and risk society. He is the author or co-author of many books. His most recent book is Unprepared, 
Global Health in a Time of Emergency, came out in 2017. And his next book, co-authored with Stephen J. Collier, is entitled The Government of Emergency, Vital Systems, Security, and the Birth of American Biopolitics. Andy Lakoff, thank you so much for joining the discussion on COVID calls. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here, Scott. So I'd like to remind everybody to ask questions. Ask questions in the YouTube live chat. You can email them to me throughout the call, sgk23 at drexel.edu. You can tweet them. Just be sure to tag me at US of Disaster. So why don't we go ahead and get started with the conversation. And Andy, if you would, I've been asking people if they could just give us a sense of what it's like on the ground where they are now. So give us the situation in Los Angeles. So uh, LA, we're all um, under shelter in place orders as elsewhere in the country. We've been in this situation for going on about two weeks. Um, you can see I'm in my converted garage. It feels a little bit like a bunker here. Um, so we're all uh, with our families. Uh, things feel very calm and quiet for the most part. There's a lot of concern that a surge is headed our way in, the, in our uh, county and, and, and city medical facilities, um, but they're not yet overwhelmed by cases. Uh, so it's really a, a watch and see over the next few weeks feeling here. And what was the situation at USC? How did it sort of play out in terms of slowing down and then closing down? Yeah, well, USC, where I teach is, is in downtown LA. Um, I think our, our central administration was very attentive early on to the possibility that, that LA might be a, a major center for, for uh, the pandemic. Um, we, along with other major universities, moved to fully online education about three weeks ago. Uh, and as far as I can tell, you know, for the most part, that's actually been going fairly smoothly, although obviously there's a lot of hiccups. Um, I think there's a lot of tolerance among the students and faculty for, 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 one, for, for, for our mistakes as we, as we get accustomed to the new situation. Do you think this um, preparedness on the university's part out there, which you described uh, moving pretty quickly and pretty surely, has to do with the earthquake preparedness that's always sort of a necessary part of life in Los Angeles? You know, it's an intriguing question. I, I hadn't made that association. I think it's possible. Um, I think, you know, with the wildfire season we had just last summer, we're, we're pretty accustomed to massive emergencies here. We have a very proactive uh, governor, a proactive mayor in LA. Um, I was actually pretty impressed and surprised by how quickly they moved to adopt some of the public health recommendations on, on shutting down public gatherings, closing restaurants, asking families to stay at home. So, you know, it's possible that California is, is kind of uh, ready for this based on, on recent uh, other, other areas of practice. Yeah, that's, that's been on my mind. It's sort of which cities may be more or less prepared and which institutions within those cities based on you know, private sector preparedness that may have gone on because of fire or, or earthquake. So, well, let me turn to your uh, area of expertise and I uh, wanted to just um, uh, remind uh, everyone, if you haven't seen, there was the front page of the New York Times, big story, um, which the, they talked about the United Nations. And um, there's a quote there. It says, the current coronavirus outbreak is the biggest challenge for the world since World War II. That was a quote from UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres. Now, the World Health Organization, the WHO, is an agency of the UN, so presumably he meant that WHO was crucial to meeting this uh, major challenge. So I guess I'd like you to start, if you could, just tell us a little bit about the WHO itself, and, and if you would, share with us how you think it's performed in this crisis. Mm -hmm. A couple of, I think, important things to, to think about in terms of the WHO. One is that over the 
last decade since it was established, there are really there've really been at least two major areas of work for it. Uh, one is the the one you already alluded to in, in outbreaks of infectious disease. Uh, the WHO coordinated the smallpox vaccination campaign and very successfully at a global scale into the 1970s um, has also been very involved in other infectious disease responses most recently before this one uh, Zika um, now the other part of the WHO's work and arguably the dominant part of its work for the last few decades is on non-communicable diseases uh, and figuring out how to assist countries that are affected um, whether it's cancer heart disease um, diseases of poor countries malnutrition and so on. And so there's, a, there's been a long running tension within the WHO over where it should be devoting its energies. And, and so uh, experts in infectious disease um, became especially worried about emerging new infections really back in the early 1990s, late 1980s. Uh, and they've, they've struggled over the last couple of decades to get the resources and attention, not only of the member nations of WHO, um, but of, nation, you know, of, of, of national governments more generally and of the UN um, high-level high-level decision makers uh, to get the the WHA more focused on the possibility of outbreaks like COVID nineteen. So I, I know you watched them closely, and you must have been watching their press releases coming out in early January. Can you tell us a little bit um, how you assess their actions? How well have they done? How equipped are they to deal really with something emerging at this scale around the world? Yeah, well, I mean, I think here it's important to think about what the particular role is of WHO in relationship to national governments mm -hmm. uh, and, and why it is that the WHO plays a pretty important role at the early stages of a potentially catastrophic outbreak. So the, the role of the WHO is really to try to gather information and reports from around the world about possible new emerging infections and then to, to warn countries that something may be on the way to um, to assemble experts to make recommendations about how to deal with a potential crisis. So it really relies on national governments to be transparent about what they're what they're reporting. Um, and I think you know in coming months and even years, we'll see a lot of inquiry into what happened in exactly the period you're describing, uh, early January um, into mid and late January of this year, um, in which one had a sense that from the WHO that it wasn't. Uh, an especially urgent situation. It took them a while to, um, to, to, to raise the alarm to a full-scale public health emergency of international concern. Um, epidemiologists around the world were kind of saying, look, it, it, it's going to be a pandemic. Where's the, where's the WHO here? And so we'll have to, we'll have to look into that. And, and you know, my own knowledge is a little bit more of prior episodes. And it's, it's really interesting if you look at episodes from SARS to uh, H1N1 swine flu to Zika, there's often this question and uncertainty in the early stages of an outbreak as to how alarmed the global health community should be. And I suppose their ability to do their work also hinges on the nature of the relationships they have with the first country, the countries of origin that need to report to them what's going on. I couldn't find a, a release from the WHO before December 31st. Uh, there may have been other things, but that was the first sort of major press release I could find. So. I would have, I had expected to find something earlier, frankly, when I went back and looked, but that was the first thing I saw. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, the WHO does really rely on national reporting systems at an early stage. Uh, and so part of the inquiry will have to focus on, you know, what was the, the Chinese health uh, ministry telling the WHO early on? Um, and then how, 
credulous or perhaps you know overly credulous the who was of the the chinese government when it was saying that we've got these we've got this disease contained so could you give us i was just looking at their website and said they have uh, 150 offices around the world 7000 employees I, I can't quite picture how that compares to health and human services in the united states but it's smaller certainly in terms of, right. of personnel so it's pretty lean um considering its mandate can you tell us a little bit about how its leadership works? Uh, is, this, is the leadership appointed? Uh, is it voted on through the UN process? Give us a little bit of sense of how governance at WHO works. So there's a group of uh, WHO member nations, which are you know, equivalent to the United Nations, um, and they uh, form their health representatives form the World Health Assembly, um, and that assembly votes on the leader periodically. Um, and the leader uh, really relies on the, both in terms of resources and expertise, on the active involvement of the member nations. And the member nations form committees that set the agenda of WHO. Um, as you say, WHO itself is a fairly small organization. It sees itself as coordinative, um, as providing guidelines, ideally direction to uh, national governments and, and, and health ministries um, as they make uh, health policy but it really doesn't have the, the capacity to do much in the way of um, direct intervention and operations around the globe. I see. So let me turn a little bit to some of the topics of your, of your recent book, Unprepared, because you sketch out there a sort of recent history of the WHO through a number of different cases. And you, you talk about the development of the international health regulations. You talk about SARS in 2002, um, Ebola, Zika, can you walk us through a little bit of some of the challenges WHO and international um, pandemic preparedness have faced in the, in the last 20 years? I guess maybe if you want to start with SARS, that seems like a good, a good place to start that part of the discussion. Yeah, SARS is a, a great place to start in some ways because it really was the first uh, global event to focus the attention of national governments on the problem of newly emerging infectious disease. And the problem as it was conceived at that point was really that um, not only the WHO, but also um, other nations couldn't necessarily trust certain national governments to report outbreaks, the outbreaks that, that might have an effect on tourism and trade. And this had happened mm. even before SARS, there, were, there was an outbreak of plague in India in, and what, an outbreak of cholera in Venezuela in the 1990s. And, and, and those countries reported late to the WHO. And what happened with SARS that was interesting was that even though um, China was late to report what was going on to the WHO. By this time, there were, there were internet-based, non-national epidemiological reporting services mm. that um, global health authorities could rely on for data. Um, and so they were able to take advantage of those non-national sources uh, to monitor the outbreak, eventually to contain it. I mean, fortunately, it turned out not to be nearly as transmissible as, as coronavirus has been. Um, but that's that event uh, and, and the massive disruptions in trade that it sparked led to uh, a major new policy initiative in 2007, which was called Global Health Security. Mm. Um, and Global Health Security uh, involved getting the member states of the WHO to sign on to um, a newly revised version of the international health regulations. This is a, a system of international regulations that had been in place since the 19th century to govern things like oh, really? quarantines, travel restrictions, um, in response to very specific um, diseases, uh, cholera, uh, I believe, plague, I'm not sure what, um, smallpox. Um, and they changed these um, regulations, the, the member 
nations agreed to change the regulations to recognize the possibility of a novel disease um, and to also figure out how to require governments to comply with uh, the WHO investigators and allow them into the country. So, so a deal was struck among the member nations to really make themselves more transparent to investigation given this new threat. One, one other event I should mention very much in this context was worry about bird flu. Um, and that really uh, grew, grew around 2004, 2005, as it looked like it, the possibility that H5N1 bird flu could mutate to become humanly transmissible. Uh, and so that was a lot of the impetus behind the adoption of these new regulations. But you're describing that the international health regulations actually had a sort of 19th century history going back. And, and that was to provide what sort of a common data collection and transmission procedure, or you were talking about sort of forensic ability to allow out of country doctors to come in and take a look at what's going on inside. What exactly were they for? I mean, the surveillance piece actually is more important to the current version of uh -huh. the regulations. The 19th century ones, a lot of them were about ensuring that um, an outbreak of one of these 19th century um, epidemics like cholera didn't lead to um, a, an international economic crisis. So they, it was basically member nations agreeing not to necessarily shut down trade, um, not to necessarily block off uh, trade and, and, and other kinds of traffic from other countries upon the occurrence of an, of an outbreak. So it was really a kind of defensive multinational uh, liberalism in, um, in light of potential disease, disease epidemics. So there was a real concern at that time that the outbreak of a disease would just lead countries to throw up borders and barriers and say, we're not going to trade until, until this is, I mean. That's right. and, that, and that happened around the cholera epidemics in the mid 19th century. So, this, so, so the, so the okay. first iteration of these regulations were a response to that. Wow. I mean, we were talking with Cindy Ermes uh, and Christina Fryer last week about two different um, cases. One, the plague of Provence in 1720, and then a cholera outbreak in Jamaica in 1851. And these themes, I mean, we go back, I guess, as far as we want to take them in, in the history of medicine. The first impulse of like literally telling the ships you can't come into the, you can't come into the harbor. The quarantine is a very old construct, but then becomes increasingly out of step with globalization. Right, and right. In, in industrial trade. So, um, okay, well, let's bring it about, you were talking about 2007 then as a sort of moment of reflection and the need to update IHR around surveillance. What does that actually, what kind of new powers did that actually create? You know, again, I would argue that the, the power of the WHO is a kind of um, pu public warning power as much mm. as it, um, it directives that they can um, enforce with, uh, in terms of what nation states do. So we might take the case of H1N1, uh, which um, emerged in 2009. And the, the WHO, that was actually the first time the WHO used the new instrument that was invented in the 2007 revisions. Um, and this is called the, the Public Health Emergency of International Concern. And it's a, it's a kind of decision tree um, that tells WHO when to um, raise the alarm to the highest level and when to say, you know, this is something that every nation state has to put its pandemic preparedness plans into action. It needs to get its vaccine stocks ready. It needs to get its emergency responders um, available and, and in communication. And so WHO declared this emergency at the outset of the H1N1 um, epidemic uh, when, in, in, I believe it's April 2009, and that 
led nations to um, put in place their own vaccination plan. So it really was a guidance for countries in how to respond. Um, and what happened interestingly was that in a lot of countries, uh, especially in, in Western Europe, um, many critics thought the WHO had overreacted and that the, that the national governments had spent way too much money and attention on uh, a mass vaccination program for a disease that as they would put it, turned out to be you know, not worse than the, the, the normal seasonal flu, which of course is, is quite deadly. Right, so bring us up to the Ebola outbreak then 2014, uh, 2014, right. And um, did that in some way validate the need for these new, um, this new protocol in 2007 or what, you know, what was the impact of, of, the, of that outbreak in this context? Yeah, it's another a really interesting case to think about because again, this wasn't the outbreak that was originally expected when the World Health Organization came up with these guidelines. They were thinking about something like pandemic flu. Um, they had by this time categorized Ebola as a kind of generally localized, you know, obviously very deadly disease, but not something that threatened the entire globe with pandemics. So they hadn't really considered Ebola when they were putting together these regulations. Um, and, and, and indeed, when the 2014 outbreak was first being reported, and a lot of observers on the ground from organizations like Médecins Sans Frontières were saying, you know, there's something really uh, dangerous going on. There's something, you know, this is really um, spreading uh, beyond what we've seen before with Ebola. Um, the authorities in WHO took their time to declare it a public health emergency of international concern, perhaps because uh, they had been burned in the prior um, early declaration with H1N1, perhaps because they, they conceived of Ebola as a, the kind of disease that wasn't going to, to, to cause global economic and, and, and public health catastrophe. It was going to be fairly easily containable and localizable. Um, in the end, it didn't, it, you know, and, 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 and a major intervention was necessary in some ways, in spite of the inaction of WHO, and it wasn't WHO that led that intervention, it was you know a group of organizations, including the US and the US military, you'll recall. Right, and after these um, outbreaks, does the WHO have its own capacity to do sort of introspection? I mean, do they do what, you know, after action kind of reports like the military does? Are those resources you can turn to as a scholar to figure out what how they're learning from these? Because you pointed to a couple of, key inflection points here that have happened in relatively recent history. Yeah, I mean, one, one thing that was actually fascinating to see after the uh, Ebola um, epidemic was finally contained with a whole series of reports, uh, some of them from within WHO, but some of them from other organizations, mm -hmm. um, philanthropic organizations, other multilateral organizations, um, assessing the WHO's role in the response. Um, and you know, it was a moment of crisis within WHO, and it was even questioned whether WHO had the capacity to deal with emergencies. Uh, they were seen as having really failed in this case. Um, and they, they, they reorganized and created a separate um, sub-agency sub specifically focused on managing health emergencies. Um, and, but that agency still suffers from a problem of getting enough resources to really be able to capture attention um, and, and, and respond as necessary when, when events occur. Um, so in the first test of that was Zika, um, but mm. now we're seeing a real test of it. And, and I, I mean, I, I think we're scholars and, and other observers are going to have to, to investigate this, in, um, in the coming months, but I, I think we still don't really know how well WHO responded in this, in this particular instance, or I, I, I don't. 
I'm learning a lot of this in this discussion and part of it telling me how presentist my understanding of the WHO actually has been because I always have been thinking, I think SARS must have planted in my head this sort of idea of them as an infectious disease coordinator and data coordinator and responder. Um, but what you're saying earlier is, you know, that really this sort of chronic helping countries understand and manage chronic disease is a, an important context and that this is a relatively new function for them, the way you're yeah, describing or, it? Or one way to think about it is there was kind of a return. I mean, there were, certainly, um, you know, in the era of the, the smallpox eradication right. program, there was a major function um, on basically coordinating global efforts to, to contain and eventually extinguish smallpox epidemics. Um, so it did have, you know, an important um, area of focus on, on, on infectious disease, but by the mid to late 1970s, I think among global uh, or World Health Authorities, there was a sense that infectious disease wasn't really the big problem anymore, that vaccination and, and, and sanitation programs had solved th those issues in the you know, and, and, and WHO's time. It was now time to turn to primary health care, um, mm -hmm. to, 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 maternal, to maternal care, um, to, to uh, malnutrition, um, those kinds of things. So as you said earlier, um, WHO does what it does. It has its it has its capacity. It has its limits. But uh, response is still more or less a matter of national concern and national governments. So can we turn now to um, talking a little bit about your assessment of how we've done in the United States with that? I mean, I guess or from a preliminary sense, and unfortunately, I think we have to say we're early in this. Um, but what have you been paying attention to at Health and Human Services at CDC? or even at FEMA to try to understand how well the United States government is dealing with this? Yeah, I mean, I think um, all of us are looking at things both at the federal level, but also at the state level and, and some of the really fascinating tensions that are, that, that are emerging between states uh, and the federal government. And, you know, I think what we've seen in the US is uh, arguably much more proactive intervention on the part of certain states uh, that, mm -hmm. that you know, ha have, um, an orientation toward public health um, that that have big cities that were really you know in which the governors felt that that action needed to be taken and and, and then a demand that the federal government uh, get more involved um, within the federal government. There's also been you know real tensions to observe among the different agencies you alluded to, Health and Human Services, FEMA, um, but also the 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 really fascinating tension between the the government health experts and and the the political officials above them. Um, so, you know, what, what one observes, I think, more, most generally, and I'm, you don't need to be a specialist to see this, is that for the first several weeks, at least, of this, there was you know, major confusion at the federal level about how to respond to this um, right. and who was even in charge. Uh, and, and one of the most interesting developments for, for folks like you and me who study the history of this stuff in the last week or so was the shift from um, Health and Human Services to FEMA of, you know, who was going to be in charge of coordinating uh, federal response. Somebody I know at, at FEMA actually texted me right about that moment and said, HHS just got fired, um, which pretty much nailed it. Right? Nailed it. And I think, but we'll, it'll take some time for us to unpack exactly what, what that meant. I mean, FEMA's job is much more about logistics. Um, and that seems to be a lot of what the pressing need has been lately. Um, so I want to, I want to come back to that, but I guess like you were giving us, um, some ways to think about how WHO 
itself has evolved, particularly since the 90s. Can you do something similar for us with that in terms of United States capacity for pandemic response? Take us back into the Clinton years and maybe help us understand what has been changing in terms of the United States' ability to perceive pandemic and react. Well, I think for, for thinking about the United States, it's really useful to, to, to imagine two parallel tracks of, let's call it biological preparedness. One focused on the possibility of a bioterrorism attack and the other focused on the possibility of a newly emerging disease. And those tracks gradually coming together by 2007 or eight or so. Mm-hmm. Um, so during the Clinton administration, um, famously Bill Clinton, I think read the Cobra event uh, by Richard Preston, got really worried that um, you know, a bioterrorist might get their hands on a really nasty pathogen, perhaps some of the lost stockpiles of smallpox and anthrax from the Soviet Union, mm. um, or that bio, bioweapon scientists had been, uh, you know, take, from the Soviet Union had moved to, to places like Iraq and were planning a, terror, a bioterror attack. And so a lot of the early um, what we what we might call biosecurity policies were really focused fairly narrowly on certain kinds of um, potential bioweapons agents, mm. smallpox and anthrax. And you see that in what's in the strategic national stockpile, vials and vials of smallpox vaccine, botulism antitoxin, um, anthrax vaccine, uh, and so on. So on the one hand, there's this bioterrorism preparedness going on. Um, mm. Now, meanwhile, you have in the beginning, as I said, in the late 1980s, infectious disease specialists saying, we need to worry about these new emerging inf- emerging pathogens, emerging mm. viruses. Now, those don't really come together in the United States, I would say, until um, really the Bush administration and the uh, post-Katrina response to the possibility of pandemic flu. Uh, mm. So um, some of the health officials uh, in the Bush administration became very worried um, in part after seeing the, the failures of the response to Hurricane Katrina, that the next big one, the next big sort of political um, and uh, social vulnerability was going to be a, a, a pandemic of H5N1, of bird flu. Um, and so a lot of stockpiling of antiviral medications, a lot of pandemic planning was done at the federal level. Um, mm-hmm. Exercises were done at the local, at the local um, level of public health agencies and emergency response agencies. Um, so there's a kind of generic understanding of biological threats that you can see converging um, by the, the late Bush administration uh, into the early Obama administration. Um, and this, uh, this new office of the Assistant Secretary for, for Preparedness within the Department of Health uh, is put in place at that point. So some of this, the very agencies that mm. are very much involved right now in responding to, um, to COVID-19 were invented uh, and, 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 and plans were developed right in that, in that point about 15 years ago. Let me pick up the first track, the biological defense um, trajectory that, that you were talking about. Does that extend back to the Cold War? I mean, is there a civil defense uh, prehistory for this? Yeah, the, well, there's certainly a long running world of bioweapons development and bioweapons defense during the Cold War. And it, it, it had also been, you know, been sort of scaled down at the end of the Cold War. And there was a sense that we don't have to worry about this anymore. Um, I think it, it was around 1998 that a former bioweapons scientist for the Soviet Union um, emigrated to the US and said, well, by the way, we, we had lots of stockpiles that you guys didn't know about. And, and the Soviet, you know, the, after the Soviet Union collapsed, we didn't keep track of where, what happened to this. And that, that created this new alarm. 
um, around the possibility of a bioterrorism event. Um, another sort of interesting relic of the Cold War is just the very model of the way that you should respond to a future emergency is to have um, systems in place for stockpiling uh, countermeasures and distributing those countermeasures across from the federal government to the states. So there was a, there was a vast enterprise in stockpiling medical supplies in anticipation of a nuclear attack. Now that was closed down by the mid 1970s mm -hmm. um, and the, the stockpile model was rebuilt in the late 1990s, but this time um, anticipating a bioterrorism attack. So there are interesting resonances with the, the prior Cold War templates for thinking about a potential future catastrophe that would basically put back in place in the era of, uh, of the terrorist threat. And um, that kind of work was managed, so let's go back to the 90s, that kind of work was managed out of health and human services, or where, where would we in the government find those those people, it's such a wonky question, but I, yeah. I really, because yeah. you wouldn't find him in FEMA. That was more in the Defense Department. So the Defense ah. Threat um, Reduction Agency, DITRA, okay. one of the places, a lot of it was classified work. Um, so yeah, so it was for the most part in the Defense Department, but then there was an interesting tension between, okay, so who's gonna be in charge of response to one of these events? Do you want right. the military um, in charge or do you wanna put HHS in charge? And so there was, an speaking of wonkiness, there's an obscure function called Emergency Support Function Number Eight. Uh, and there was a debate in the Bush administration, okay, do we give emergency support and function number eight to the health and human services folks or to the military? Who's gonna be better at responding to this? And it went to health and human services in the end because of concern about military intervention in the civilian sphere. That's interesting, because I have heard some, some talk um, even now about, you know, in this particular moment, why don't we just turn the response over to the military? And uh, somebody was even on CNN saying this a couple of weeks ago. Um, but what you're saying is that decision's already been made a while back. I mean, I suppose it could be overridden, but the, the framework is not there for it. The decision, but you know, I, I think that doesn't mean that you couldn't, um, you know, delegate certain logistical elements to the military. Constructing hospitals quickly would be something the military is good at. They showed they were good at this uh, in the Ebola, um, you know, in the Ebola epidemic in West Africa. So it's not to say that the, the military couldn't get involved, but I think the decision was definitely not was definitely made not to put the military in charge of response. So I had thought that September 11 would have played a role. It's interesting the way you're, you're periodizing here that it's really post-Katrina that actually um, raises alarm bells um, that leads to a lot of sort of new innovations in pandemic preparedness in the US government. But did 9-11 play much of a role at all? Yeah, I mean, you want to couple 9-11, of course, with the anthrax letters, and that's okay. why. They weren't being coupled, but it was still really oriented toward this terrorist threat at that point. So. The, 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 the key significance, I think, of Hurricane Katrina and bird flu is this is the moment when the bioterrorism preparedness converges with what we now call pandemic preparedness. That is, it's no longer focused on trying to figure out, you know, are there certain agents that our enemies are, you know, getting ready to attack us with and how would we respond to that? And now something different. Um, should we be looking at wildlife markets in, in Asia? Should we be um, tracking Bird, mig bird migration around the world to see whether uh, H5N1 is evolving. So a whole different set of forms of surveillance, 
and forms of preparedness um, comes to it, the center of attention in the you know, Federal Health Administration's um, offices by the 2005, 2006 or so. I see. You know, there's a, a kind of a discussion that sometimes goes on in emergency management circles about the 1990s as being a kind of a golden decade. Cold War is over. They don't have to plan for nuclear attack, which they couldn't really plan for anyway, realistically. Um, and then September 11 forced them into the tunnel of terrorism preparedness and everything. You know, how do we prepare for an earthquake? You prepare for terror attack. How do you prepare for a, a hurricane? You prepare for a terror attack. And then Katrina was a correction of that, you know, and that, that seems to align with what you're describing here is Katrina is a really, a really important uh, moment with this, what you say, this convergence of the two streams as well. Biological yeah, preparedness. Yeah, and right. um, I think that's right. And I don't want to, you know, and underemphasize the importance of 9-11 in, in directing energy toward thinking about biological threats, but the, you know, what, what, what happens in these cases is there are tools already available at hand, and some of those tools had already been put in place by the, by the late 1990s. So I wanna um, be cognizant of people getting questions in here. So let me just, I had a question from Manuel Taroni. Um, and actually it goes back to sort of an earlier part of our discussion, but I think it's appropriate here. So this is Manuel's question. Big data and computer scientists now seem to have become the new disaster experts. What are the implications for governance um, and for the role of science um, in big data? I think that's applicable probably to our discussion of the WHO, but also to our discussion now about what's happening inside the United States government and its ability to react to something like COVID-19. Yeah, it's a really interesting question. In fact, um, you know, this is the kind of thing that I think is ripe for inquiry for, for, for social scientists trying to figure out, you know, what to do right now. I mean, so, so, so here we are in our, in our bunkers or in our offices, um, sheltering in place, trying to figure out what's happening. I think looking at what is the role of, of big data um, in shaping policy responses. One, one thing I would, I would point our attention to would be debates over epidemiological modeling right now. So, so you know, you look at, there's lots of different outfits doing epidemiological modeling based on data that's coming in and that there are different sites that have um, different ways of counting how many cases are emerging. Um, we're in a period of great uncertainty over you know, the extent to which um, confirmed cases actually match actual prevalence, the extent to which we can actually um, make claims about case fatality ratios, about demographic risk groups. Um, and meanwhile, there's you know, lots and lots of independent scientific groups generating models of what's likely to unfold next if we have one policy or another. Um, and that's, of course, a product of, of the availability of lots of big data very quickly. So I think it's a great empirical question for us to start looking into. That's my way of getting out of the answer to the question. <laughs> no, it's, a, it's an important question. It also maybe speaks to um, you know, what we were just talking about, the inheritances of the kind of most valued skill sets for this kind of work. And if you have a sort of a Cold War or a defense inheritance mind, um, then the thing you may be most prepared for would be for, would be for logistics, would be for command and control, or even as you said, for managing secrecy and try to decide what kind of information should be public and what's secret. Manuel's question points to maybe a, a different direction, um, that it's actually the big data manager, the, the analyst, the algorithm um, analyst, the data scraper who can really, maybe that's the skill set that's privileged as we go forward. Yeah, I mean, it raises a, another kind of, let's call it a, almost ontological question about what, what is a catastrophe, right? How do we know there is one? Um, in, during the Cold War, the, 
it was going to be immediately obvious what what that calamity looked like. Um, right. In case of Hurricane yeah. Katrina, you know, you can track it; its onset. You can you can follow it visually. Um, the calamity that's unfolding now is a calamity that's only knowable via data tracking. You know, we 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 know how many um, cases, how many deaths are occurring in each place. We can compare them and how they move over time. So the, the the visualization and conceptualization of what sort of event we're living through hinges on the kind of data that you're talking about. So I want to get to another question um, from Mike Fisher here. And Mike was interested from the beginning of our conversation talking about um, pandemic preparedness and scenario formation. Uh, and he mentions, um, sort of curious about scenario exercises in Los Angeles or at the state level for pandemics in California, but also at the national level. And he mentions um, some work here, uh, Limor some. Seminian Darash's work on scenarios and Israel's annual exercises. And this has been discussed. Um, they wrote a couple of Crimson Contagion, for example. We've heard a little bit about that as an exercise. It was maybe done late in the Obama years. Can you take us a little bit into this world of pandemic planning exercises? I imagine you've read a few of these. Yeah, well, and this gets back to your earlier question about the role of the Cold War. So, so you know, the... The scenario-based exercise is a tool that was invented in the early Cold War to plan for, you know, how would government and uh, federal government and local officials respond to um, the event of a nuclear attack. Uh, so uh, a lot of um, detailed plans were laid about how you would put in place an emergency government, how resources would be allocated, um, what kinds of needs civilians would have. Uh, and, and the way to learn about your current vulnerabilities, according to this method, it's an event that's never occurred, a, a thermonuclear attack. How do we know what we need for that is to um, create a very detailed scenario of how that, what would unfold. Um, so, that, so with analogy to the, to the nuclear model, a whole sub-profession of people who develop scenarios and who hold exercises existed um, in, you know, in the 1990s and, and, and early 2000s. And so when the, the novel threat of a bioterror attack uh, came to the consciousness of uh, of authorities, or one way that they it was pushed into their consciousness was actually through holding scenario-based exercises. There was a famous one in 2001 called Dark Winter uh, that simulated um, a smallpox attack uh, in the U.S. And um, typically, these exercises, of course, um, push the system to failure. Is the way that the way that designers put it, um, and they show they show where your vulnerabil vulnerabilities lie. So with Dark Winter. Um, shortages of vaccine led to civil unrest, massive political breakdown. Um, the the public officials, including Sam Nunn, some of you may remember the former senator from, from Georgia, played the president in this simulation. Um, and they said, you know, what we really need is, is, is to have vaccine ready in case uh, there's a smallpox attack. And that led to um, stocking millions of vials of smallpox vaccine in our strategic national stockpile. So, this, this technique of holding exercises, which really has, I guess, at least two functions. One is to generate knowledge about what our vulnerabilities are in the present so that we can mitigate them. Um, but another of them, another is to, to generate an affect of urgency. Um, if you hadn't been worried about a smallpox attack, well, participate in this exercise and you will get worried about it. Um, the tool has been very effective in the sense that it has spread, um, it's, it's used it was adopted by the Centers for Disease Control to think about pandemic preparedness and, and local health agencies were given grants to run drills and simulations around the country. It's disseminated internationally. So uh, Mike Fisher mentions Limor, uh, Seminian Darash's work in Israel on bioterrorism preparedness exercises there. 
Um, so it's, you know, the, the no, it's, it's really, I think, a knowledge production device, um, how to know what to do about an event that has not yet occurred, that may not occur, but if it does occur, would be catastrophic if we were not well prepared for it. This term, affective urgency, is that your term? Um, I, I no idea. It might be. You just, you just came up with that. That's amazing. Cause it, and actually, you know, because in the Cold War, the civil defense um, tabletop exercises were built in uh, part of the calendar. I mean, and, and I hadn't really ever thought of it that way, but that, that was a really um, administrative function. I mean, that, was a, that became a sort of culture of preparedness had meant that you, you know, civil defense directors in cities and states would come and go, but I'm now going to use your new term. This affective urgency was important. And so it was literally built into the entire structure of how it, of how it worked. But you've mentioned a couple of these pandemic exercises. That's not a normal feature of what happens in HHS now. I mean, this is, these are one or two off kind of things. They don't happen on a on a calendrical basis. My sense is that it is it is a regular feature. I don't know if it's systematized. You know, during the Cold War, you're alluding to to the the kind of every year at least exercises. For there, there was one called Operation Alert that was held yeah. in most years during the 1950s. So it was a, it was in June. You have your Operation Alert. Yeah. I don't know if it's that systematized, but certainly we've been reading lately about the various exercises that sound, you know, eerily like COVID-19 that were held in the last couple of years by the Trump administration. There was one that was called Crimson Contagion. Um, there was an article that came out a, a, a couple of weeks ago on this one. Um, there, was, there was another exercise in the transition from the, Trump, from the Obama administration to the Trump administration mm -hmm. and the, the various um, Homeland Security uh, and health officials got together to run um, a pandemic preparedness exercise. Uh, so, so indeed, it's it's I think as you say, it's a regular practice within government at, at multiple levels. And I, but I don't know how calendrically regular okay. it is. Well, you mentioned Donald Trump. We have 15 minutes left, so let's just um, analyze his entire pres. No, let's not do that. Let's. But I, I have a question for you because I do. You know, when we when we look at these agencies, there's a sense in which we want to understand their continuities, but we also have to be realistic that elections do matter and what happens particularly at the tops of these agencies is um, can be some pretty dr drastic turnover and real ideological um, changes. Do you think, and I'm just asking you to speculate here, but how do you think this COVID-19 epidemic would be playing out in the United States differently if George W. Bush was president or if Barack Obama was president for that matter? You know, it's interesting, and I think with George W. Bush, you might want to think about whether you mean pre-Katrina or post-Katrina George W. Bush, because I think that, the, for example, the mm -hmm. Homeland Security Department for the Bush administration was really a counterterrorism department in their conception of it um, until Hurricane Katrina, and with, at which time, at the highest levels, they realized, oh, wait, we need this for other things. Um, so the attention of the Bush administration shifted to other forms of threat, like pandemic preparedness after Hurricane Katrina. Um, Certainly, you know, I think you can you could argue that the, the structure of emergency preparedness this is, you know, alluding to, to the work you've done in the United States is so distributed. Um, it, it really relies on the function of local and state agencies in close collaboration with federal agencies uh, in terms of the allocation of resources, in, in terms of sharing personnel, uh, in, in terms of being aware of what's what's unfolding on the ground. Um, and that's just the, the structure of emergency management that, that we built over the last 60 years. Uh, and so for that to, to work, you really need somebody at the highest level who actually believes in it and cares about it. Um, and so, you know, there was a famous head of FEMA under Clinton named James Lee Witt, 
um, who, who was really dogged, dogged about getting together the various emergency managers mm -hmm. in each state, and he was very alert and attentive to it. And I think, you know, it, it's, it's pretty clear that certain administrations put folks in charge who are professionals and who are serious about it right. and have expertise. Um, and then you had famous, you know, Mike Brown uh, in the Bush administration, who was a political uh, appointee. He had, he had been a collector of horses, I think, before he, he became head of FEMA. Um, and so that's when you see, you know, when, when lack of expertise really costs you. And, and we're seeing that again in the Trump administration, clearly. So I want to encourage people, we have about 10 minutes left. If you want to get questions in, uh, I wanted to come a bit to some of the tensions that I think are, we're going to see emerging here in the next several months. One of them has to do with um, uh, basically measuring risk, and, you know, one of your areas of expertise and the kinds of um, values that different risk measurements throw into relief. So for example, whether or not you, you view what's happening in the United States now as primarily an economic disaster with unfortunate human, human um, impacts, or a predominantly human and care disaster with unfortunate economic impacts. And we've already seen this state by state where governors are making decisions about what counts as essential or non-essential business. How are you thinking about these values coming into conflict in this moment? How do we, how do we parse that? You know, one way to think about that is in terms of a kind of long running discussion that's often cast in, in ecological debates around um, cost-benefit analysis versus precaution. Um, so to what extent can you, know, can you use technical assessments of risk um, to make policy decisions when, you know, when there's a possibility of some catastrophic event occurring that in some ways outstrips our ability to, to calculate cost and benefit. And I think one way to think about what you've been seeing in the early stages of response to this uh, pandemic is the predominance of precautionary responses. In other words, um, you, you haven't seen at the highest policy levels serious attempts to say, oh, you know, the way that we say with pollution regulation, for example, uh, you know, a, a life that is 60 years old is worth X amount. And so, you know, we're willing to, to sacrifice certain, a certain number of these lives given the economic cost it would, it would involve to preserve them. Um, and, and, and you certainly see that in, in debates over um, environmental regulation. Yeah. Um, we haven't seen those debates. I think, you know, so far you've seen certain voices beginning to say, but wait a minute, is the, the cost of, you know, massive financial crisis worth uh, saving a, cert a certain number of lives? Um, I imagine that that debate is going to continue and perhaps even intensify over mm -hmm. the next year as we um, try to figure out when do we um, tamp down the, the social distancing measures? At what point do we, do we reopen certain parts of, of the economy? Um, how do we know uh, when the danger uh, has subsided enough that we're willing to take certain other kinds of risks? So I think that's something to attend to over the next several months uh, in terms of um, both policy decisions and kind of cultural discourse more generally. And to me, that really speaks to one of the major challenges for disaster researchers like yourself in this moment, which is this is a slow disaster. This is playing out. This is not slow disaster at the pace of climate change, let's say, but this is not, as you said earlier, a Hurricane Katrina or a September 11. Um, and in the midst of that, so we have to somehow be attentive to even how the actors that we study may be changing their minds about the data that's interesting to them. They may, we're used to President Trump changing his mind constantly. We're much less used to people like Tony Fauci or others, I'm not saying he has, but uh, that whole agencies having to grapple with how they communicate information in real time. 
and coming to precipice like what you're describing here, which is going to, at some point in the not too distant future, mean a governor or a mayor, usually probably a governor is gonna say, okay, schools are gonna reopen in two weeks. The stores are gonna reopen. And what's your basis for making that? Well, and they're gonna have to, they're gonna have to explain their, their rationale for that, aren't they? That's right, and I mean, as I think you're suggesting, it puts us disaster researchers into an interesting position. You know, we, if disasters are usually, you know, in the rearview mirror as historians, we can study responses or they're, they're very rapid uh, and, and we're, we're studying them right after they've happened. Right now we have this very unusual time frame of a, of a, of a disaster that's unfolding over at least the next six months to a year. Um, and so what should we be paying attention to? How, how should we be voicing our own positions in the debates that you're, that you're describing as they begin to uh, arise? Do you think that the, the vaccine is the real story here then? Because that becomes the moment at which um, public officials can basically say, okay, I have confidence now that we can, that we can reopen this, we can re-engage this, we can have basketball season again, we can have the Olympics again, or, or can we not wait that long? Is the economic distress so great that the vaccine can't be the ending point? Well, let me make a pitch here for research on the process of in investigating and testing a new vaccine because it's gonna be incredibly scientifically and politically high stakes to, to, to demonstrate and, and, and measure the, the safety and efficacy of a new vaccine. So that's a real chance for us to, to be involved in, in what's going on over the next few months. Um, in terms of you know where the stakes will lie, I think obviously, an effective, widespread, widely distributed vaccine would be a total game changer here. I think um, an earlier one will be widespread testing. Um, you could imagine a scenario in which it was easy enough to test whether you had already been exposed to it. There was knowledge about the kind of Im immunity you get from having been exposed to it that would allow people to feel more confident entering into public life. Um, so I could imagine that on a shorter time horizon than uh, vaccines. Or you could imagine certain forms of um, tacit acceptance of social distance emerging, you know, yeah. even without um, a vaccine or, or, or really widespread diagnostic testing where we figure out how to live in restaurants and how to commute on um, mass transit, um, but not touch each other or get too close. Uh, so, so I think um, the sort of risk calibration is going to be a really delicate process uh, to, to, to witness over the next um, year or so. I've been thinking about that too, that in the next 18 months at the end of that, we look back that maybe what we'll have habituated ourselves to is um, who we can trust to tell us to stay inside for the next two weeks or come outside. And I, and I, and I do wonder which of those two commands in the end is going to be harder to follow, you know, to go in or, or to come out. Because I think coming out again um, may require more trust once people are a little bit, and of course that probably has to do with norms of how much people trust science and how densely populated where they live. Um, that to me, and this is maybe a, this is a kind of a specific question to disaster research, but how will disaster researchers do their research at, at distance, do you think? It, does it have a, does it have a real impact? I mean, a lot of disaster researchers are used to going out in the midst of a disaster and gathering perishable data right then and there. You're a sociologist, you, you've studied those kind of methods. Is that something we have to give up on right now? Um, you know, I think there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of tools available to us now. Um, the, this sort of 
interview. One could certainly do with you know, the kind of work that, that you and I do on, on expertise, um, we can do via documents, via interviews um, that are online. Um, certainly, it's not, a, it, it's not a great moment for, for ethnographic research unless you are an um, emergency medicine specialist yourself and you can do participant observation yeah. um, while, while in the hospital. Um, but uh, I think, again, as our norms change and our strictures change, new opportunities will arise for different kinds of research. So um, I think there's, there's a whole bunch of things that can be done. So um, I wanted to, we have a couple minutes left. I had one of their questions going back to something raised earlier by Yonsil Kang. She was asking about the WHO as a forum for international dispute um, and particularly this issue that the UN doesn't recognize Taiwan and some concern that then WHO is not gonna share information with Taiwan or doesn't have the same kind of relationship with Taiwan. And it may not necessarily be in your wheelhouse, but do you have a sense of that at all? Well, without being able to address the specific question about Taiwan, um, I will just note that there there are really interesting precursors precursors to this question of WHO as an organization that mediates other kinds of international disputes. A case that I, I would really um, look to is this fascinating case in around 2007 in which the Indonesian health minister uh, refused to provide the WHO with samples of H5N1 bird flu from, from Indonesian patients on the grounds that the WHO was sharing uh, sequences from those samples with pharmaceutical companies in order to develop vaccines that would then not be accessible um, to, because they'd be patented to, to the Indonesian population. So um, a, a term was invented at that time called viral sovereignty to name this, um, this notion that, 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 that the viruses belong to Indonesia. She wasn't gonna share them. Um, and there was a huge debate over how WHO should respond to it. So, so certainly it's a place where these kinds of international tensions play out around um, emerging disease response. So Andy, you're one of um, the researchers that and I'm sure you've heard this before. We, um, we love to hear from you. We don't like to have to talk to you urgently, but thank you for really bringing a lot of light on this really complex um, sort of global infrastructure of pandemic planning and response. And I do wanna encourage everyone to pick up Andy's book, Unprepared, which came out in 2017. And we're looking for the next book um, coming soon, I hope. Yeah, uh, turning, it in, turning it into the press week, actually. Yeah. Oh, well, then it'll be out um, before this pandemic is settled, certainly. Um, and we'll be looking for your writings and hopefully get a chance to talk to you again in the not too distant future. So Andy Lakoff, thank you so much for joining COVID Calls today. And I wanna remind everyone that this conversation will be archived on SoundCloud. You just look for the Slow Disaster Podcast and please also join the COVID Calls tomorrow for a discussion of care and grieving and intergenerational communication with Sarah McBride, Bernadette McBride and Yvonne Michael. Stay healthy everyone and we will speak with you tomorrow. Thank you again, Andy. Thank you.